is wrong with me? Yeah! yeah. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought or two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo!
Hello, and welcome to Mutiny Radio. This is Women's Magazine. Uh, Global Val uh, is will not be in here in person uh, this week. So this is Roman. I will be sitting in for Global Val and bringing everyone some news. Uh, I usually host the Weekly Review, which is a show right before this. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll also be having the Common Thread Collective following this uh, this show. So open up the show with a song by a wonderful artist named Monica McIntyre, and I highly recommend checking out her work. She's incredible. So uh, this, this week, uh, there's been some pretty draconian, some horrible things happening in, in Oklahoma that I feel uh, we should uh, should be discussed. And this article comes from The Guardian, and this is written by M- Molly Redden. And uh, it says, Oklahoma legislators pass near-total abortion ban that criminalizes providers. And this is really, really reprehensible. And it's disgusting that there are folks in positions of power that want to limit people's access to reproductive health care or any health care and it's misogynist and it's it's disgusting. So I'm going to read a little bit about this just to, to get the word out. Uh, the bill heads to the governor, and if it becomes law, any doctor who performed an abortion except to save a woman's life could face three years in prison. A bill that would make performing an abortion a felony punishable by three years in prison passed the Oklahoma legislature on Thursday, shifting controversy surrounding the measure on to the state's anti-abortion leader, Governor Mary Fallon. The bill, which opposing legislators say is patently unconstitutional, is almost unprecedented in modern times, a near-total ban on abortion. If it becomes law, any doctor who performed an abortion except to save a woman's life would face criminal prosecution and the loss of his or her medical license. Oklahoma currently has two licensed abortion clinics. Fallon, who is widely thought to be under consideration as Donald Trump's running mate, ugh, on the Republican presidential ticket, has not publicly indicated if she will sign the bill. Her office has said she does not intend to comment until it can review the legislation. Without her signature or veto, the measure will become law in five days. The bill has generated unease even in Fallon's own party. In April, 33 members of the Oklahoma House, including many conservatives, abstained from voting on the bill. On Thursday, a handful of Senate Republicans voted against it. Abortion rights advocates immediately indicated plans to challenge the measure in court if it becomes law. This obviously unconstitutional bill will never withstand legal scrutiny, said Elise Hogue, uh, president of the reproductive rights advocacy group Narrow Pro-Choice America, in a statement. It is a shameful new low for the anti-choice movement. The bill is in direct conflict with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade, the 1973 case that established the right to abortion. Specifically, Roe v. Wade forbids states from banning abortion outright until the fetus is viable outside the womb at about 24 weeks. State Senator Nathan Dom, the Republican author of the Oklahoma bill, has indicated that sparking a court challenge that ends with the overturning of Roe v. Wade is one of the goals of his bill. It would not be the first time in recent years that a state went to court to challenge the fundamental tenets of Roe v. Wade. In 2013, North Dakota banned abortions after 12 weeks, and Arkansas banned the procedure after six weeks, before most women realized they are pregnant. Both measures were immediately blocked in court, and the states undertook expensive battles to defend their laws. Those disputes ended in January, when the Supreme Court declined to hear arguments to reinstate either law. Conservative states and lawmakers have flirted with bans on abortion before, usually with little success. 
Colorado Republican Cory Gardner, now a U.S. senator, introduced a bill when he was a state senator that would have banned nearly all abortions and sentenced providers to 12 years in prison. It failed. In the 1990s, Louisiana and Utah made attempts to ban abortion that ended with resounding losses in court. So one can only hope that these laws will also just be bills will be swept away um it's it's pretty it's disgusting it's just incredibly disgusting and it's a just such a waste and uh i have nothing i can't uh, come, i can't speak for anyone else but this whole thing makes me incredibly sick um the idea that someone assumes that they have the rights to tell someone else what to do with their bodies is really gross and that will lead us into the next story i was going to uh, play a clip um from uh, this is about sex workers speaking up for what they want and unfortunately we live in a culture that criminalizes and demonizes sex workers and it criminalizes a lot of people just based on who they are and what they choose to do with their bodies which of course should be up to them so we'll be going into that and also just wanted to comment uh, on the show of course in San Francisco yesterday there was another murder by the SFPD a 27 year old unarmed black woman was murdered by the SFPD and uh, Mayor Lee finally um, asked uh, Chief Sir to resign, and of course this has come after months of pressure, um, and it's been a very, very long time coming. The SFPD has been out of control, and finally the the chief has been asked to resign and has done so, and uh, many folks are looking at the next steps to take. This is just one step in the long line of things that need to change. Whew. So, without getting too, and I guess one one should get angry about these things because uh, we live in a culture where violence is uh, tolerated and it's disgusting, especially when it's done by folks who are uh, supposed to serve and protect and in the end they end up uh, escalating these situations and causing a lot of the harm and violence. Um, so this next uh, this next clip I'm going to play is from a, a, a TED talk that a, a friend uh, posted, and again, uh, the fact that I think sex work is criminalized is pretty is pretty disgusting, and uh, everyone should have body autonomy and have the rights to do with their bodies what they wish to do, and especially in a culture where women are are demonized and criminalized and I'm, I'm someone who happens to be transgender and I spent a good chunk of my life uh, being socialized and uh, viewed as female and uh, recognizing the changes that have happened uh, in terms of how people treat me and uh, there's no doubt in my mind nor in the many in the minds of the many trans male friends I have just how different people are people will treat you based on your appearance um, and gender and the the misogyny that is entrenched in our culture and needs to be addressed and stopped immediately and it's it's disgusting to hear people people continue to uh speak uh just to not even address it or it's it's become so normalized violence as well as the misogyny there's the microaggressions and there's also the violence and we need to rebuild our culture and tear down the systems that are in place that continue to allow this behavior to happen and so some folks who are definitely uh, criminalized and, and victimized a lot by this happen to be sex workers. So I wanted to play a clip 
that um, allows folks to speak their truth and to share their information because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of brainwashing uh, when it comes to sex work and people make a lot of jokes about it and there's very little room for understanding or compassion or even just to hear people tell their stories and that goes beyond sex workers that goes to many many groups that are marginalized and oppressed so uh, this is uh, a talk from Tony Mack, and that's T-O-N-I Mack, and this is a TED Talk, and it's the laws that sex workers really want. I want to talk about sex for money. I'm not like most of the people you'll have heard speaking about prostitution before. I'm not a police officer or a social worker. I'm not an academic, a journalist, or a politician. And as you'll probably have picked up from Mariam's blurb, I'm not a nun either. <laughs> most of those people would tell you that selling sex is degrading, that no one would ever choose to do it, that it's dangerous, women get abused and killed. In fact, most of those people would say there should be a law against it. And maybe that sounds reasonable to you. It sounded reasonable to me until the closing months of 2009 when I was working two dead-end minimum wage jobs. Every month my wages would just replenish my overdraft. I was exhausted and my life was going nowhere. Like many others before me, I decided sex for money was a better option. Now don't get me wrong, I would have loved to win the lottery instead, but it wasn't going to happen anytime soon and my rent needed paying. So I signed up for my first shift in a brothel. In the years that have passed, I've had a lot of time to think. I've reconsidered the ideas I once had about prostitution. I've given a lot of thought to consent and the nature of work under capitalism. I've thought about gender inequality and the sexual and reproductive labor of women. I've experienced exploitation and violence at work. I've thought about what's needed to protect other sex workers from these things. Maybe you've thought about them too. In this talk, I'm going to take you through the four main legal approaches applied to sex work throughout the world and explain why they don't work, why prohibiting the sex industry actually exacerbates every harm that sex workers are vulnerable to. And then I'm going to tell you about what we, as sex workers, actually want. The first approach is full criminalization. Half the world, including Russia, South Africa, and most of the US, regulate sex work by criminalizing everyone involved. So that's seller, buyer, and third parties. Lawmakers in these countries apparently hope that the fear of getting arrested will deter people from selling sex. But if you're forced to choose between obeying the law and feeding yourself or your family, you're gonna do the work anyway and take the risk. Criminalization is a trap. It's hard to get a conventional job when you have a criminal record. Potential employers won't hire you. Assuming you still need money, you'll stay in the more flexible, informal economy. The law forces you to keep selling sex, which is the exact opposite of its intended effect. Being criminalized leaves you exposed to mistreatment by the state itself. In many places, you may be coerced into paying a bribe or even into having sex with a police officer to avoid arrest. Police and prison guards in Cambodia, for example, have been documented subjecting sex workers to what can only be described as torture. Threats at gunpoint, beatings, electric shocks, rape, and denial of food. Another worrying thing, if you're selling sex in places like Kenya, South Africa, or New York, a police officer can arrest you if you're caught carrying condoms. 
because condoms can legally be used as evidence that you're selling sex. Obviously, this increases HIV risk. Imagine knowing that if you're busted carrying condoms, it'll be used against you. It's a pretty strong incentive to leave them at home, right? Sex workers working in these places are forced to make a tough choice between risking arrest or having risky sex. What would you choose? Would you pack condoms to go to work? How about if you were worried the police officer would rape you when he got you in the van? The second approach to regulating sex work seen in these countries is partial criminalization, where the buying and selling of sex are legal, but surrounding activities like brothel keeping or soliciting on the street are banned. Laws like these, we have them in the UK and in France, essentially say to us sex workers, hey, we don't mind you selling sex, just make sure it's done behind closed doors and all alone. And brothel keeping, by the way, is just defined as just two or more sex workers working together. Making that illegal means that many of us work alone, which obviously makes us vulnerable to violent offenders. But we're also vulnerable if we choose to break the law by working together. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine was nervous after she was attacked at work, so I said that she could see her clients from my place for a while. During that time, we had another guy turn nasty. I told the guy to leave or I'd call the police. And he looked at the two of us and he said, you girls can't call the cops. You're working together, this place is illegal. He was right. He eventually left without getting physically violent, but the knowledge that we were breaking the law empowered that man to threaten us. He felt confident he'd get away with it. The prohibition of street prostitution also causes more harm than it prevents. Firstly, to avoid getting arrested, street workers take risks to avoid detection. That means working alone or in isolated locations like dark forests where they're vulnerable to attack. If you're caught selling sex outdoors, you pay a fine. How do you pay that fine without going back to the streets? It was the need for money that saw you on the streets in the first place. And so the fines stack up and you're caught in a vicious cycle of selling sex to pay the fines you got for selling sex. Let me tell you about Mariana Popa, who worked in Redbridge, East London. The street workers on her patch would normally wait for clients in groups, for safety in numbers, and to warn each other about how to avoid dangerous guys. But during a police crackdown on sex workers and their clients, she was forced to work alone to avoid being arrested. She was stabbed to death in the early hours of October 29th, 2013, and she'd been working later than usual to try to pay off a fine she'd received for soliciting. So if criminalizing sex workers hurts them, why not just criminalize the people who buy sex? This is the aim of the third approach I want to talk about, the Swedish or Nordic model of sex work law. The idea behind this law is that selling sex is intrinsically harmful, and so you're in fact helping sex workers by removing the option. Despite growing support for what's often described as the end-demand approach, there's no evidence that it works. There's just as much prostitution in Sweden as there was before. Why might that be? It's because the people selling sex often don't have other options for income. If you need that money, the only effect that a drop in business is going to have is to force you to lower your prices or offer more risky sexual services. If you need to find more clients, you might seek the help of a manager. And so you see, rather than putting a stop to what's often described as pimping, a law like this actually gives oxygen to potentially abusive third parties. To keep safe in my work, I try not to take bookings from someone who calls me from a withheld number. If it's a home or a hotel visit, I try to get a full name and details. If I worked under the Swedish model, a client would be too scared to give me that information. I might have no other choice but to accept a booking from a man who is untraceable if he later turns out to be violent. If you need their money, you need to protect your clients from the police. 
If you work outdoors, that means working alone or in isolated locations, just as if you were criminalized yourself. It might mean getting into cars quicker. Less negotiating time means snap decisions. Is this guy dangerous or just nervous? Can you afford to take the risk? Can you afford not to? Something I'm often hearing is, prostitution would be fine if we made it legal and regulated it. We call that approach legalization, and it's used by countries like the Netherlands, Germany, and Nevada in the US. But it's not a great model for human rights. Under state-controlled prostitution, commercial sex can only happen in certain legally designated areas or venues. And sex workers are made to comply with special restrictions like registration and forced health checks. Regulation sounds great on paper, but politicians deliberately make regulation around the sex industry expensive and difficult to comply with. It creates a two-tiered system, legal and illegal work. We sometimes call it backdoor criminalization. Rich, well-connected brothel owners can comply with the regulations, but more marginalized people find those hoops impossible to jump through. And even if it's possible in principle, getting a license or proper venue takes time and costs money. It's not going to be an option for someone who's desperate and needs money tonight. They might be a refugee or fleeing domestic abuse. In this two-tiered system, the most vulnerable people are forced to work illegally, so they're still exposed to all the dangers of criminalization I mentioned earlier. So, it's looking like all attempts to control or prevent sex work from happening make things more dangerous for people selling sex. Fear of law enforcement makes them work alone in isolated locations and allows clients and even cops to get abusive in the knowledge they'll get away with it. Fines in criminal records force people to keep selling sex rather than enabling them to stop. Crackdowns on buyers drive sellers to take dangerous risks and into the arms of potentially abusive managers. These laws also reinforce stigma and hatred against sex workers. When France temporarily bought in the Swedish model two years ago, ordinary citizens took it as a cue to start carrying out vigilante attacks against people working on the street. In Sweden, opinion surveys show that significantly more people want sex workers to be arrested now than before the law was brought in. If prohibition is this harmful, you might ask, why is it so popular? Firstly, sex work is and always has been a survival strategy for all kinds of unpopular minority groups. People of color, migrants, people with disabilities, LGBTQ people, particularly trans women. These are the groups most heavily profiled and punished through prohibitionist law. I don't think this is an accident. These laws have political support precisely because they target people that voters don't want to see or know about. Why else might people support prohibition? Well, lots of people have understandable fears about trafficking. Folks think that foreign women kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery can be saved by shutting a whole industry down. So let's talk about trafficking. Forced labor does occur in many industries, especially those where the workers are migrants or otherwise vulnerable, and this needs to be addressed. But it's best addressed with legislation targeting those specific abuses, not an entire industry. When 23 undocumented Chinese migrants drowned while picking cockles in Morgan Bay in 2004, there were no calls to outlaw the entire seafood industry to save trafficking victims. The solution is clearly to give workers more legal protections, allowing them to resist abuse and report it to the authorities without fear of arrest. The way the term trafficking is thrown around implies that all undocumented migration into prostitution is forced. In fact, many migrants have made a decision out of economic need to place themselves into the hands of people smugglers.
Many of them do this with the full knowledge that they'll be selling sex when they reach their destination. And yes, it can often be the case that these people smugglers demand exorbitant fees, coerce migrants into work they don't want to do, and abuse them when they're vulnerable. That's true of prostitution, but it's also true of agricultural work, hospitality work, and domestic work. Ultimately, nobody wants to be forced to do any kind of work, but that's a risk many migrants are willing to take because of what they're leaving behind. If people were allowed to migrate legally, they wouldn't have to place their lives into the hands of people smugglers. The problems arise from the criminalization of migration, just as they do from the criminalization of sex work itself. Right? This is a lesson of history. If you try to prohibit something that people want or need to do, whether that's drinking alcohol or crossing borders or getting an abortion or selling sex, you create more problems than you solve. Prohibition barely makes a difference to the amount of people actually doing those things, but it makes a huge difference as to whether or not they're safe when they do them. Why else might people support prohibition? As a feminist, I know that the sex industry is a site of deeply entrenched social inequality. It's a fact that most buyers of sex are men with money, and most sellers are women without. You can agree with all that, I do, and still think prohibition is a terrible policy. In a better, more equal world, maybe there would be far fewer people selling sex to survive. But you can't simply legislate a better world into existence. If someone needs to sell sex because they're poor, or because they're homeless, or because they're undocumented and they can't find legal work, taking away that option doesn't make them any less poor, or house them, or change their immigration status. People worry that selling sex is degrading. Ask yourself, is it more degrading than going hungry? Or seeing your children go hungry? There's no call to ban rich people from hiring nannies or getting manicures, even though most of the people doing that labor are poor migrant women. It's the fact of poor migrant women selling sex specifically that has some feminists uncomfortable. And I can understand why the sex industry provokes strong feelings. People have all kinds of complicated feelings when it comes to sex. But we can't make policy on the basis of mere feelings, especially not over the heads of the people actually affected by those policies. If we get fixated on the abolition of sex work, we end up worrying more about a particular manifestation of gender inequality rather than about the underlying causes. People get really hung up on the question, well, would you want your daughter doing it? That's the wrong question. Instead, imagine she is doing it. How safe is she at work tonight? Why isn't she safer? So, we've looked at full criminalization, partial criminalization, the Swedish or Nordic model, and legalization, and how they all cause harm. Something I never hear asked is, what do sex workers want? After all, we're the ones most affected by these laws. New Zealand decriminalized sex work in 2003. It's crucial to remember that decriminalization and legalization are not the same thing. Decriminalization means the removal of laws that punitively target the sex industry, instead treating sex work much like any other kind of work. In New Zealand, people can work together for safety, and employers of sex workers are accountable to the state. A sex worker can refuse to see a client at any time, for any reason, and 96% of street workers report that they feel the law protects their rights. New Zealand hasn't actually seen an increase in the amount of people doing sex work, but decriminalizing it has made it a lot safer. 
But the lesson from New Zealand isn't just that its particular legislation is good, but that crucially, it was written in collaboration with sex workers, namely the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. When it came to making sex work safer, they were ready to hear it straight from sex workers themselves. Here in the UK, I'm part of sex worker-led groups like the Sex Worker Open University and the English Collective of Prostitutes. And we form part of a global movement demanding decriminalization and self-determination. The universal symbol of our movement is the red umbrella. We're supported in our demands by global bodies like UNAIDS, the World Health Organization, and Amnesty International. But we need more allies. If you care about gender equality, or poverty, or migration, or public health, then sex worker rights matter to you. Make space for us in your movements. That means not only listening to sex workers when we speak, but amplifying our voices. Resist those who silence us, those who say that a prostitute is either too victimized, too damaged to know what's best for herself, or else too privileged and too removed from real hardship, not representative of the millions of voiceless victims. This distinction between victim and empowered is imaginary. It exists purely to discredit sex workers and make it easy to ignore us. No doubt many of you work for a living. Well, sex work is work too. Just like you, some of us like our jobs, some of us hate them. Ultimately, most of us have mixed feelings. But how we feel about our work isn't the point. And how others feel about our work certainly isn't. What's important is that we have the right to work safely and on our own terms. Sex workers are real people. We've had complicated experiences and complicated responses to those experiences. But our demands are not complicated. You can ask expensive escorts in New York City, brothel workers in Cambodia, street workers in South Africa, and every girl on the roster at my old job in Soho, and they will all tell you the same thing. You can speak to millions of sex workers and countless sex worker-led organizations. We want full decriminalization and labor rights as workers. I'm just one sex worker on the stage today, but I'm bringing a message from all over the world. Thank you. So welcome back to Women's Magazine. That was Tony Mack uh, with The Laws That Sex Workers Really Want, and you can catch that uh, at TED Talk, which is at TED.com. So yes, wanted to provide the voice, to share the voice of people speaking up for themselves, especially uh, for a group of folks who are, are, who are criminalized in this country and often not, um, their voices are not heard. So I really wanted to, to share that with everybody. So Global Val will be calling in in a little bit. You're listening to Women's Magazine here on Mutiny Radio. Coming up at 3 p.m., there will be the Common Thread Collective going from 3 till 6. Here at Mutiny Radio, uh, we've got shows here every day of the week, and uh, there's lots of live events as well. There's, there's comedy, there's music, there's politics, everything under the sun. So please do check out some other shows here at Mutiny Radio. So uh, while we wait for Val to, to call in, we'll be playing some more music from Monica McIntyre, and we'll be back in a little bit. I live below, I live below 
Welcome back to Women's Magazine. Hey there, Roman Reimer. Thanks How's for... my connection coming through? This oh. is Global Val calling in. Hey, Val. Thanks for calling. <laughs> it's yeah, good well, to hear your voice. For... Great to hear your voice. Thanks for uh, taking the reins of the shows today. I really appreciate it while I kind of uh, recuperate sure. a bit. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Right on. Yeah, happy Friday. Happy Friday, indeed. 
So I know there's a lot of crazy shit going on. <laughs> probably already talked about the fact that Oklahoma just passed a law to make abortions, a, uh, performing abortions a felony. Yes, yes. Have you already talked about that today? Yeah, opened up the show with that. It's disgusting. Yeah. It's, it is. It's oh. ridiculous. And, it, you know, I was reading about it, and, you know, it, it – this is happening in the state of Oklahoma, in a state that has a huge deficit. Mm. So they've they've just passed this law, right, saying it will be it is a felony to commit an abortion or to uh, to uh, perform an abortion. You would lose your license to practice medicine in that state. Um, so it's a, you know it's targeting the doctors, um, but obviously it's unconstitutional because abortion is a constitutionally uh, you know. It's, is a right. Yes. Um, so, but so so you've got this law that is anti-constitutional, and so therefore it's going to go to court. Yes. And in Oklahoma, they have a huge deficit right now. So the state, the lawmakers who should be attending to a state's deficit mm-hmm. and the needs of the citizens, instead, are, have now passed this law which will then lead into huge legal bills for the state of Oklahoma. So it's not only, you know, totally, you know, illegal, um, and as we would agree here in Wisconsin, but it's also highly irrational. Yes. So if we're looking for the government, Oklahoma failed this week. Yes, huge, hugely. Ugh. But there's good news as well. Yes. So a, few, a couple good things showed up out of this wild week. Um, did you hear about Portugal? No. So Portugal just um, ran on renewable energy for four days. Oh, very cool. Yeah, for four straight days they were running on purely on uh, solar, wind, and hydroelectric. Wow. So this is a zero-emission milestone um, across the board. So uh, can I read a little bit of this article? Yeah, please. Uh, All right, so this is from The Guardian. Uh, uh, Portugal runs for four days straight on renewable energy alone. Uh, Renewables provided only about 23% of Portugal's electricity, which sounds pretty good. Um, <laughs> but by 2015, that figure had risen to 48%. So, yeah, Portugal kept its light on with renewable energy alone for four consecutive last week. Um, and this article is from Wednesday, May 18th, 2016. Uh, it did, oh, Electricity consumption in the country was fully covered by solar, wind, and hydropower in an extraordinary 107-hour run that lasted from 6.45 a.m. on Saturday, May 7th, 5.45 p.m. the following Wednesday. News of the zero emissions landmark comes just days after Germany and clean energy had powered almost all its electricity needs on Sunday, May 15th with power prices turning negative at several times in the day, effectively paying consumers to use it. Oliver Joy, a, I love what, what a great name, Oliver Joy. Oh, a yeah. Spoke, a spokesman for the, world, for the Wind Europe Trade Association, quote, 
we were seeing trends like this spread across Europe. Last year with Denmark and now in Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula is a great resource for renewables and wind energy, not just for the region, but for the whole of Europe. Uh, last year, wind provided 22% of electricity, renewable sources, uh, renewable sources together provided 48%, according to Portuguese Renewable Energy Association. Um, Yeah, so, so basically what we're seeing here that uh, renewable energy is uh, viable and getting stronger all the time. And so as we stand here in America and, and on the, you know, bicker over uh, fuels and the extraction of them from the earth, uh, like, um, obviously, we who are trying to uh, create better po practices and policies see that it is not a, just a pipe dream, that it's absolutely possible. And I just wanted to insert some, uh, some positivity into the news um, and uh, let people know that it's not overwhelming. It may be overwhelming, but it's not something we can't overcome. Awesome. That's very cool and very inspiring. Yeah. So go, yay, Portugal. Yeah. I don't even watch international football, but I think I'll root for their team now <laughs> next time I get a chance. Oh, yeah. Um, but one last thing, I just want to remind everybody that Monday, May 23rd, is the last day to register for the California primaries. Okay. California primary is on June 7th. You have to register by May 23rd. Um, it's really, really important to vote in the primary. I've had people come, had people come and talk to me about voting in the primary, and they ask me, like, who should I vote for? And I don't want to tell people who to vote for. Yeah. But, if, but then they said, you know, I want, I want me, but he can't win. And I have to, you know, that's, <sighs> that's, that's false on two fronts. Yeah. Like logistically, one, a primary is your chance to vote for the candidate that you want. Mm -hmm. You may not get another chance to vote for that candidate in the in the general election in November. And so, if you want Bernie Sanders to win, you can use your your vote, the power of your one vote that will add up to all these other votes, and make him your represent and represent your choice in California. Mm. And the more votes he gets in the primaries, the, the more delegate votes he will win in this state. If that's who you're voting for or that's who you'd like to vote for, but you're hesitant, don't be hesitant. Mm. This is your chance. Yes. The other false uh, falsity behind that is that Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are not too far there's not a very big difference between the number of, of uh, delegate votes that they already have won. Uh, Hillary Clinton has about 1,700 votes, and Bernie Sanders has about 1,400 votes. So we've got a very narrow gap mm. going on as, as the primaries roll around uh, the rest of the country and over here to the West Coast. Um, you know, I, I, I just really urge people to 
to do it, to get out there to vote, to exercise that right. And I especially want to remind women to do so. Uh, young women, uh, well, women of all ages, but young women especially, if, if you're feeling overwhelmed or you don't know what to do or you're just, like, getting into it and trying to figure out what to do, um, it's really important to exercise your right to vote because it has only been 96 years that women have had the right to vote mm. in this country. Hasn't been a hundred years yet, and to me that's significant. And I don't. And I and I really urge people to get out there and exercise that right to vote and use it because the United States traditionally has a has, well, not not always, but um, in recent history, has had a very pathetic voter turnout, like thirty percent, mm. and that is atrocious. If you're over eighteen and it's, and uh, you, you can and you can register to vote in the state where you live, uh, your permanent address, what have you. If that's California and you're not registered yet, register by Monday the 23rd. You do not have to be a Democrat to vote for Bernie Sanders in the, in the primary. You can, have a, you can uh, choose to be no party affiliation and the Democratic Party will still allow you to vote in that primary. Just to be clear, if, if someone marks independent, independent is an actual party, if there's the independent party, that is separate. If you want to vote, if, if you register as an independent, you get to vote for the candidates who are running on the independent ticket. Mm. Bernie Sanders is running on the Democratic ticket. And so get out there and register to vote, and uh, whoever you want to vote for, um, just do it. Cool. Thank you for that uh, motivation and the information. Well, that's... That's that's my rally cry today. Um, let's stay positive. Uh, let's keep working, keep moving forward. I'm going to go back to my napping. Uh, that was the most energy I've exerted <laughs> in the past two days, and Aww. it feels really good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with all the listeners. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, thank you, Roman, for filling in, and um, I hope you have a great time today. Uh, with the, I know the Common Thread Collective is coming up next. I'll try to call in later and um, and maybe join the conversation or read a poem or something later. But uh, I'm going to be doing it from under my little blanket. Uh, well, that sounds very cozy. Um, very grateful. Grateful to you. And oh, sure. Grateful to uh, uh, Mutiny Radio and um, Women's Magazine. Peace out. I'm Global Val. See you next week. See you soon, Val. Take care. Thank you. Peace. Peace. So thanks to Global Val for calling in, and we'll be uh, wrapping up this week's episode of Women's Magazine. Stay tuned, because coming up next will be the Common Thread Collective from 3 to 6 p.m. here at Mutiny Radio. And again, uh, Mutiny Radio has shows here every day of the week. Uh, you can catch me on the weekly review uh, just before Women's Magazine, and, and that is every Friday from noon to 2. Go over the news, interview community organizers, activists, artists, writers, thinkers, people whose voices uh, need to be heard. Uh, so yeah, again, that's uh, every Friday from noon to 2. So we'll be closing out the show with some more music by Monica McIntyre. And then coming up at 3 will be the Common Thread Collective. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And we'll be back in just a little bit. I said, Mama, I want it. Mama, I need it. I've got to have it. 
I've got to have it, she say, it soon come, it come when you need it, it soon come, it come when you're ready, it soon come, it come when you're able, it soon come, it soon come, and I say, thank you mama, thank you mama, you're right, you're right, you're right, thank you mama, thank you mama, you're right, you're right, you're right. Thank you, mama. Thank you, mama. You right, you right, you right. Thank you, mama. Thank you, mama. You right, you right. I say, mama, I want it. Mama, I need it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. She said, it soon come. It come when you need it. It soon come. It come when you're ready. It soon come. Oh, that I could be drunk. I could be drunk. Oh, that I could be drunk. I could be drunk. Oh, that I could be drawn to the right thing. At the right time and the right place. Help me as I go to the river. Help me as I lie on my back. Help me. time. Uh -huh. 
some song. 